1: My guest today is uh, Anthony Kalidas. Did I say that last name correctly? I apologize if I didn't.
0: Yeah, that's good enough.
1: Yeah. Okay. Perfect. So uh, I wanted I also asked my guest in the beginning, and how did you get into the Byzantine Empire? Because it's quite a fascinating empire in itself.
0: It is, and thank you for having me on, uh, first of all. Uh, so coming. I guess the more interesting question would not be how I got into Byzantine studies in particular, but why um, I'm a historian at all, uh, because I started out to be a physicist. Uh, And in the course of my studies in the United States, uh, I became increasingly more interested in in philosophy and gradually switched over from natural sciences over to philosophy and history. To make a long story short, um, I was interested in questions of ancient philosophy and early Christianity and the Roman empire. And those three things came together in the most interesting way in what we call Byzantine civilization, which is a combination of them. It's the most direct and only combination of those three elements in their original form. And so I found that Byzantine history and Byzantine culture generally in literature is just a fascinating laboratory to explore yeah. how all those three elements kind of interact in in interesting ways.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and, I, and, and over I, time,
0: I, I I became a Byzantinist.
1: To me, it's more fascinating because what, what we learned basically in school, right, is that the Roman Empire fell in 463, and that was the end. But no, it's not really true at all. You got the whole Roman Empire, and you got the Byzantine Empire. And I'm curious to, to, to ask you, what do you feel like is the true heritage of Rome? Is the Holy Roman Empire or the Byzantines? Uh,
0: there's no true heritage in history. Uh, I mean, historians don't really make those kinds of assessments. Right. We're not in the business of deciding who's right or who's wrong, or we shouldn't be. So let me just say that for the moment, I'm more concerned to lay to rest the idea that what we call Byzantium was not Roman and that its people were not Romans. Mm. Um, I think it is a mistake for historians to make those kinds of negative statements. Right. Uh, and I'm trying to sort of establish a kind of baseline understanding that we need to accept what our sources tell us about this. So. I'm more interested in establishing the romanness of what we call Byzantine civilization, not necessarily to engage in comparisons or to put down anybody else, but if mm. your question has to do with like lines of continuity, there's no question that the Byzantine Empire is a far more direct continuation of ancient Roman history than
1: anything in the medieval West. Mm, interesting. And we are going to talk about one particular emperor today, which is uh, Alexis Cunemnus, which is, I, th- I feel like it's quite unknown if you haven't looked into history, but it's still important to history because he's famous and unknown, and we're going to take a look at this, how that he caused the famous crusades. But what was the state, because he was not born into the purple, but what was the state before he took, did the crew and took over? the Byzantine Empire.
0: Wait, did you say he was born in the purple? No, he was not, he was was
1: not, he was not born in the purple, was what I said. What was the state of the empire before he became emperor?
0: Well, at the time when he was born, it was the most powerful state in its strategic environment. It was certainly the most powerful state in the Christian world, and while the Seljuk empire was being created in the East at this time, and that was a, becoming a very formidable power, uh, Byzantium or the Roman empire at the time of his birth was still pretty strong, very large. It extended uh, from the, all of the Balkans all the way to, through Asia Minor into the Caucasus. By the time that Alexius became emperor, uh, some 20 some years later, it had collapsed. It had lost all of its Caucasian territories, that is uh, Georgia and Armenia. It was in the process of losing Asia Minor, almost entirely, uh, that is modern Turkey. And it was about to be invaded in the West by the Normans from southern Italy. Right. And they did. Um, So the first thing that Alexius had to deal with when he became emperor in 1081 was to fend off a very serious Norman invasion, whose purpose was to conquer what was left of the Byzantine Empire and subject it to Norman rule.
1: Right. But let's talk about it was a
0: very, very weak point.
1: Any reason why it's the cause of this sudden collapse happened? Was it rebellion? Was was it was it economics?
0: What was the cause of this collapse? Okay, we can do a separate uh, podcast episode on that. Um, but <laughs> if if I had to summarize an explanation in a few sentences, I would say that the primary cause of the collapse was the simultaneous um, invasions of the empire by the Seljuks in the east, by the Normans in the west, and by the Pechenegs. Uh, uh, these are these norm- nomadic or formerly nomadic people from um, like Central Asia or the Ukrainian steppe uh, who had crossed the Danube and settled in- on imperial territory. And they were simultaneously attacking the empire. This combined with the political insecurity of the emperors led to a budget crisis. The emperors didn't have enough money to pay for political support, which they needed to pay for the armies that they needed and to pay for the campaigns that they needed to wage. So they prioritized certain areas over others, which led to losses, and then this entered a cycle where the emperors became increasingly weaker. And this fueled rebellions against them. Um, so it's a notable feature of Roman history that when an emperor is perceived as weak, he is attacked by rivals domestically. Right. And so all of those factors had come together and had made a complete mess of the situation by the
1: time that Alexius, himself a rebel, seized the throne. How does he seize the throne? How does it convince people to follow him to take over the throne?
0: Uh, Good question. So Alexius had, even though he was quite young, he was by that point, the leading general or problem solver for the regime of his predecessor. This is uh, Nikiforos III, Votaniatis, who's a very old man. And Alexius was a kind of troubleshooter and problem solver and had been sent on missions in both the Balkans and into Asia Minor, where he had generally been successful. So he was a pretty good leader. Um, he managed to inspire considerable loyalty to himself and, and confidence on the part of his soldiers. And so when he and his family, his brother in particular, they felt threatened by the agents of the emperor, the uh, III, they decided that it was either rebelling and taking the throne or being arrested and probably blinded or executed. And so they decided to rebel. And He had some soldiers and units that were loyal to him, other members of the aristocracy who were willing to join with him. And so they organized a a rebellion and marched on the city, uh, which was betrayed to them by some units that were bribed uh, who were guarding the walls. And so his army
1: entered the city. Um, Very classic military rebellion. It was a coup. Anna Tonemna, if I, if I remember correctly, Anna Tonemna recalls, his daughter recalls this event, right, in the book, The Alexiad. Yes,
0: um, Anna was Alexis's firstborn daughter, and she wrote a very long um, account of his reign called The Alexiad. Um, now I inspired that... by
1: the Iliad, of course.
0: Yes, 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 the title is inspired by the Iliad, and it's meant, it's meant to make Alexios seem heroic. And Anna deserves a lot of credit. She is the first female historian in, I don't know, Eurasia.
1: (laughs) You have to to do an entire episode of her in itself, I believe. Uh,
0: Absolutely, yes. And she has a very detailed account of, of those events. Yes, now they're meant to make her father look good. But yes, she's our main source for his reign. That's a very important point.
1: We talked about this her briefly in the previous episode as well, but is is there bi- history bias? To, can we take our source for granted, or do we, can, that's legit, or can we, is it, to, do we have to take with a grain of salt, the Alexiad? Oh, m- more than a
0: grain of salt. It is extremely biased. Uh, so, <laughs> um, I mean, no, not necessarily more so than other Byzantine sources. Uh, I mean, there are some you might, say on grounds of objectivity might be more reliable, but Anna is extremely unreliable. Uh, and, and this is, I don't, this isn't a, I don't mean to dismiss her or critique her, she has her very specific agenda, uh, which is not only to praise Alexius in some very specific ways, but also to hide some things that are not very flattering for Alexius and to link herself to Alexius in, in a very powerful way. So the whole image is crafted to give that kind of impression. There are also some things that she didn't know. And so this results in some uh, misleading impressions that she gives, uh, for example, that Alexius was completely unprepared for the arrival of the first crusade. Mm. But the, probably the main problem with her narrative is that is the chronology, uh, she will, very often group and this is standard in Byzantine historiography this happens pretty often that is they group events together thematically and not chronologically but the overall structure of the work is sort of chronological so this gives the misleading impression that an event that is told toward the end of the book happened toward the end of the reign when in some cases we absolutely know that it happened toward the beginning Mm. So she's moved things around in order to create a drama of, for example, Alexius becoming more interested in religious matters toward the end of his life when we know that those activities are dated, you know, 20 or more years before the end of his life.
1: But if I remember correctly, someone else who had a big influence on Alexius to become emperor was his mother, right? What kind of influence did she have on him? Uh, uh,
0: very decisive. Uh, so, this is uh, Anna Dalassini, Alexius' uh, mother, and she came from a very powerful and prestigious aristocratic family of the 11th century. Uh, she's the descendant of generals who go back and prior possible candidates for the throne. So, she was a very strong willed and conceited aristocratic woman and very capable at governing um, whatever was entrusted to her. And in fact, in the early years of his reign, when Alexius was busy with wars, he basically turned over a good part of the civilian administration to his mother. And Anna, his daughter, so her grandmother, or her granddaughter, uh, quotes the entire text of this legal edict that by which Alexius gave his mother this kind of sovereign authority which includes some fascinating things like for example anything that my mother decides shall be considered legally valid whether it's done rationally or irrationally interesting (laughs) it's such a it's such a strange thing to note but um and we actually do have documents even some legal documents where she is said to have basically made the decision uh so this wasn't just a you know rhetorical conceit um and Uh, Anna had, because her her husband had died uh, earlier, Anna had basically been a sort of matriarch in charge of the fortunes of the Kumneni family. And so Alexius grew up under a very strong willed mother, you know, whom he respected and um, I don't want to say obeyed, Alexius had his own mind too. there were many cases where he did what he wanted to do and not what Anna, his mother, wanted him to do. For example, in this choice of uh, wife. So he married uh, Irini Zoukina. Uh, so she's from the Zoukas family. And Alexis's mother hated the Zoukas for a number of reasons. They, these family
1: feuds went back a while. She did not want him to marry Zoukas, uh, but... Uh, did the marriage he... with this family ease the tension between the, these two families or... No, yeah. I mean, it,
0: it, it created a kind of coalition partnership between these two aristocratic families so that Comneni and the Duke are like for the next century and beyond, you know, even into the 13th century, they're kind of joined at the hip. Um, sometimes they're considered as one family, sometimes not, but it, there were tensions between them. They remain. So, for example, some scholars believe that when Alexius started to take his wife along with him on campaign later on in the reign, it was because of like he didn't, he suspected her. Like he, <laughs> he wasn't sure what she'd do behind his back in the capital if he left her there. Um, so I mean, I'm not entirely sure about that. But yeah, no, there are tensions definitely.
1: So this was purely an alliance, just a professional alliance in a sense.
0: Oh, yeah, all these aristocratic uh, marriages or
1: alliances. So Alexius takes the coup and he becomes emperor. And what is some of the reforms he do as when he first becomes an emperor?
0: So it's important to realize that Alexius doesn't come in with some sort of package of reforms in mind. It, it, it's not like he has some sort of agenda that he wants to implement Instead, he, he's facing a number of crises. And what he has to do is deal with those crises. And he does so in a very ad hoc way. And so for about 20 years, Alexius is lurching from crisis to crisis, trying to put out fires, trying to fend off invasions, trying to uh, you know, gain some kind of control uh, over territories and people. So it's not like he has a, 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 a pre-set agenda, like here's what I want to do in the way that maybe even Justinian did. Like he had a legal agenda, uh, Justinian in the sixth century, another emperor. He, he kind of knew what he wanted to do to Roman society. Alexis is kind of constructing ad hoc solutions to problems that are popping up. Is he and, trying to
1: retake the empire back to his former former glory?
0: Um yeah, I, I imagine so. Um I, I don't know that he's operating with the concept of the empire's former glory, but he, you know, he, he, he needs to defeat the Normans first, hmm. and, and then he needs to defeat the Pechenegs. The Pechenegs, especially in the late 80s and early 90s, they um Some more Pechenegs crossed the River Danube, they joined with the ones that were already in the empire, and they attacked the empire again, and that crisis was probably even worse than the Norman invasion. Why was that? there There were some years, yeah, in the late 80s and early 90s when Alexius basically didn't control much apart from the capital, Constantinople. And he only managed to defeat the Pechenegs by making an alliance with the Kumans, who were this other uh, nomadic people who lived beyond the Danube. And together they defeated the Pechenegs. And it was only at that point, sort of 10 years into his reign, that Alexius could feel like, okay, now I have some breathing space to try to put this house back in order. And so, you know, really anything that we might call reforms take place in the decade after that so in the 1090s. And the kinds of things that he prioritizes are first of all. Um, revenue. So where does the Emperor and his apparatus, which in this case was his family, where does they get where do they get their revenue from and. It turns out that he engaged in some pretty massive confiscations of lands, He confiscated lands from monasteries, from churches, but also from some very large and powerful landowners in in the Balkan provinces. Uh, We happen to know about these confiscations more from the monastic archives because they survive. But there's pretty good evidence that this was a widespread confiscation of lands which went to the state. But what Alexis did then is that he assigned some of those lands, sort of state lands, to select relatives like his brothers and other supporters. So other members of this extended aristocratic clan that he was building around himself through all of these complicated marriages. So remember, he's also controlling the marriages of his closest relatives, like you can marry this woman and so forth. And he's assigning them these properties as their custodians. In other words, instead of those properties paying taxes directly to the state through state officials and tax collectors and so on, they, this is kind of decentralized and they go to his local agents, say his brothers. And his brothers receive the retinues, the revenues from those lands in order to support them. Now, we don't have very good sources about this. So it's not entirely clear if, for example, they were then required to provide soldiers uh, from those territories to contribute to Alexis's army. If that's the case, and it seems likely, this would have been what we call the pronoia system. It's a Byzantine administrative term where, you ass- where the state assigns lands to someone And instead of collecting taxes from those uh, lands, the the person who benefits from them provides soldiers or is himself a soldier, for example. Hmm. These are non hereditary. So it's not a feudal system. This those lands remain, you know, the either the property of the state or the state retains the exclusive right to um, to exploit them, but can assign it to someone else. Uh, it's complicated. Here we can get into some into one of the most complicated areas of Byzantine research. So maybe we we don't we don't want to go there. No, 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 please. And do. another thing, uh, another thing that Alexius did, and I've got to mention the important points first. Another thing that Alexius did was to try to burnish his credentials as an Orthodox ruler. That means to engage in sort of symbolic actions, in particular the. Sort of crackdowns on heresy or philosophers who seem to be having unorthodox ideas in order to make himself look more uh you know like more religious in part this was cynical in the sense that in order to wage some of his wars alexius had to confiscate um not just lands but also that gold and silver from the churches, especially in Constantinople, just to melt it down and make coin to pay his soldiers. Like they really had run out of money. And that, of course, made him very unpopular. And there were a lot of controversies. And Alexius was accused of being, you know, attacking the churches and things like this. And his relatives right. were generally unpopular. Um, other Romans didn't like that that his relatives were getting this preferential treatment and were being treated as an extension of the imperial uh, of the crown to the detriment of other Romans who might have otherwise made careers in the administration and so on. So Alexius was always sort of, th- there were always um, groups and factions that were opposed to him. There were always many conspiracies against him during his reign. Let's not forget that he lost many battles. So he's one of these Roman emperors who loses a lot of battles, but wins the war. But those losses were very costly uh, in both of, you know, manpower and money and his prestige. And so there were periods when he was sort of very weak and insecure. He'd always come out on top, but you know, there were moments when it looked like it was touch and go. So he was always having to make sure, you know, watch for conspiracies and have agents everywhere and, and so things like that. So he engaged in a number of symbolic actions to demonstrate to the capital and to the empire that he was a very pious orthodox ruler. And that involved sometimes rounding up heretics, uh, having trials for, for heresy, but also giving some money and lands to to uh, monasteries when he could afford it. Uh, So I think those are the general principles of Alexius's administration. So to sum up, reliance on his family in the top positions, kind of outsourcing regional governance and administration and especially tax collection to agents, and other members of his regime who benefited from those kinds of positions and symbolic actions to demonstrate his orthodoxy.
1: But something that i noticed with Alexius is that the previous, because the previous emperor loved his food, he loved to draw down with fancy food, but this was not Alexius, right? And so, so he, but he was very treated the poor, very kindly. So I'm trying to tell me about how, why did, what was one of the reasons he treated the poor so kindly of invited them to royal dinners, and this is very unlikely for an emperor, is it, is it not, that he's so kind to pour poor, the poor invite him into his palace? I'm sorry, he's, he's inviting whom to his palace? The poor, the unfortunate, if you will.
0: Um, emperors uh, very traditionally did that. Um, it wasn't unusual. So, you know, part of his image was to, so Alexius was a, he was a pretty informal person and ruler in the sense that, you know, we don't, you know, previous Byzantine emperors, some of them, not all of them, they invested a lot in building up their exalted image, so being out of reach, out of touch, you know, to you know, superb and like sun kings, and you know, seen from afar or sitting on a throne that can rise up to the ceiling, you know, these kinds of things.
1: Right. Or where it's
0: difficult to gain access to them. Like you, there's so many intermediaries, the court is complicated, uh, you know, and the emperor is generally an inaccessible figure hidden away behind lots of eunuchs. Alexis is pretty much the opposite of that and and this might have to do with his with his formative years which were spent in the army campaigning improvising in very difficult situations he always wanted to be approachable to his men he didn't try to exalt himself that way we we often find episodes where he's engaged in very informal conversation with people personally uh, and this is recorded in a number of different kinds of sources and different languages. so it's, it's not a, it's not like an image that he tried to you know, manufacture and project. But he seems to have been pretty informal on you know, speaking terms with people of any social rank, uh, even uh, didn't insist too much on ceremony. Um, we have especially we have some very interesting accounts. Um, when the Crusaders were passing through and the, the sort of ways he interacted with them, but also with others and bringing, you know, the poor to share in the imperial table that was a, that was a traditional gesture that emperors would um, make in the past it's not uncommon, but Alexius. He definitely tried to give the impression that he was not wasting anyone's money on luxuries and his own pers- personal pleasures. So especially under the influence of his very pious mother, Anna de la Sini, the palace sometimes gave the impression of being like a, a very austere, almost like a monastery. <laughs> um, so very strict and religious and all that. And, and he, when he went on campaign, he would have this old man with him, like a, a monk who was like his confessor or something, just to kind of watch over his morals, just to make sure so that everybody knew, right, that he's not engaged in any dubious no, or moral behavior.
1: He's um, not this godlike figure.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, no, he didn't give that impression. But he also he didn't want to, um, you know, be seen as an emperor who's enjoying himself too much or anything. Right. Um, but you know, he he also wasn't like personally very. Um, um, how should I put it off, you know, sort of austere and off putting person. He, he had a sense of humor, he would make jokes. Uh, He'd love to have fun, but I don't think it was like, uh, you know, lug- he wasn't into luxury and ostentation. Uh, his fun, I think, was very
1: down to earth. Could you compare him more to Marcus Aurelius in that sense that both of them are, were more or less down to earth? They were kind, they, they were one of the good, some of the good emperors, if you will. Would that be fair?
0: Um, I suppose you could say that. Um, I think, I mean, Marcus Aurelius in his meditations he talks about how he went through the motions of imperial ceremonies and like going to the hippodrome and things like that, even though he himself personally was indifferent to those kinds of things, he he did it because it was required by his position. Uh, I don't think Alexius necessarily did that, but I think they were similar in the way that they I don't think either of them took their positions. Like, I don't think they were deluded by the majesty of their own positions. I think they both were kind of down to earth people. They they knew themselves pretty well. and. You know played the role insofar as it was necessary but also tried to be their own people you know being their own you know who they were uh, as much as they could
1: yeah never more down to earth emperors if you will i mean i get the impression that alexius was like that sure so before we go to the next point i feel like it's important to talk about the state of the byzantine military so what was it difficult to understand why he called them the Crusades? So what was the state of the Byzantine military army like in, before, he, before, the, before the Crusades and, you know? Oh,
0: not good. <laughs> uh, in, in the early 11th century, the Empire had many very powerful, very well organized, very well funded, and very capable armies. By the time Alexius took the throne, those armies were almost entirely gone, not only because there was no money to pay them and maintain that kind of military infrastructure, but also because they had been defeated so many times and dispersed and defeated again that um, it's very difficult to find any continuity between the, the military units before you know, 1071, the Battle of Manzikert, when the Turks defeated uh, the Romans in, um, in uh, the Far East Asia Minor, so in, in the Caucasus region. After that point, it's very difficult to trace institutional continuity. And whenever we get numbers in the sources, they keep getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And then Alexius himself suffered so many defeats in the early uh, decade, the first decade of his reign, that, you know, the army must have been chewed up Cut up into little bits, and he was constantly having to put those little bits back together in new ways. And so it's very difficult to trace the, the history. The, so- the sources aren't that good when it comes to unit continuity or anything like that, or even numbers. So, for the most part, Alexius is, you know, he's well, the Roman army has basically two main sources uh, native Roman recruits and foreign auxiliaries or mercenaries. And in the past, the army was overwhelmingly native Roman, 90 95%, with some small contingents of foreign mercenaries who were hired because of their particular military skills, like, uh, you know, Franks or Normans who were good uh, heavy cavalry, or, uh, you know, Scythians or uh, Pechenegs, rather, who were good um, uh, cavalry archers, uh, you know, so very specialized things like that. Alexius was basically having to cobble together armies from whatever units he could get, which meant, you know, whoever he could hire, which, of course, is why he needed all that money so he needed to hire people so his armies tend to have lots of petchen eggs a bunch of Frankish that is Western uh, mercenaries, uh, preferably cavalry when they could get it uh, also Turks he hired uh, soldiers from the Turks in Asia Minor who, remember, are occupying part of his empire. But when he needs to face Normans, he'll hire Turks. And when he needs to face the Turks, he'll hire Westerners. So this is kind of the situation that Byzantium finds itself in at this point and forever after, right? It's kind of squeezed between Turks and Latins. And it has to, often the emperors will hire one to fight the other and vice versa. So, yeah, that's kind of the situation of the army. Um,
1: Improvised ad hoc whoever he could hire now there's a city called antioch and i want to know why was this an important city to the byzantines and so how did they lose the city of antioch because the way i understood it, it is quite a difficult city to conquer if i'm correct antioch is is difficult to conquer not impossible
0: it's often been it's often taken i mean the the byzantines themselves retook it in 969 970 after siege um, and they kept it for over over 100 years and then it fell to a succession of uh of powers uh, so in the so in the chaos caused by the seljuk conquests of the 11th century um it it, it changes hands a number of times after after about 1080 or 10, late in the late 1070s, I think effectively the Romans have no control over it. And then it's taken again by the, by the first crusade, right? Right. Um, After another bitter siege. So yeah, it can be taken, but it is, you know, very well defended. So Antioch is a very important city because, I mean, for the Roman Empire at this time, because it's situated as a what we would call today a forward operating base if you plan to project power towards Syria and northern Mesopotamia. So the Romans retook it, like I said, in the late 10th century at a time when they were expanding again in this area. They'd conquered Cilicia, Cyprus again, parts of Syria, northern Mesopotamia. They made Aleppo into a client state. And Antioch became the headquarters of the most important um, military uh, installation, and the the gov- the, the, the Duke the Dukes of Antioch was the most important military official in this region. So, for controlling northern Syria and northern Mesopotamia, uh, Antioch was a strategic base. It was also fairly large city in its own right. Yeah, it had a sort of mixed population, but probably mostly Orthodox, uh, though Arabic-speaking Orthodox, uh, Melkites. Nevertheless, they were you know, perfectly acceptable to Byzantine Orthodoxy. So, I mean, it's just it's the same religion, just different language. And so it was a kind of natural place to make into a headquarters for those reasons. So, there was a, usually a garrison there of a, you know about four thousand soldiers. Um, I mean, in the heyday of you know the 11th century. Uh, but Alexius, he never, he never had Antioch in his empire. He
1: had lost it. So, does he work with Islamic uh, troops or mercenaries to get to get the city back again, or is that which city Antioch? Uh, no, Alexis never went
0: near Antioch. Uh, he never claimed Antioch. It was the first crusaders, especially right. Bohem- uh, Bohemian that took, uh, that took it. And, uh, and they kept it. He wanted it back. He believed it belonged to his empire and he made claimed it and tried to, you know, strong arm them into giving it back, but uh, he never did get it.
1: Is Antioch a City that exists today that people can see, or is it was it completely sacked? In uh, it, no, it's it's there.
0: It's uh, uh, you know Antakya in in modern Turkey, and people can go and there are there are ruins and archaeological digs. I don't know if there's any going on right now, but uh, there have been some very important archaeological excavations in um, in, in Antioch now. You know Antioch is a city that you know was created in early Hellenistic times so yeah, around 300 BC so it's had a very long history it's changed hands and gone from empire to empire very many times and so with many wars so there's been a lot of destruction you know it's uh in, in I hope that soon it will be easier to go and travel and see it and so I encourage any of your listeners who like to travel in those parts of the world to go take a look. But uh, they might also, in the meantime, they might want to take a look at the uh, publication of the ancient mosaics from Antioch. Uh, these are especially the early, early Roman period mosaics. They're pretty spectacular. Um, yeah. Now, you asked about Islamic troops. As I said, Alexius would hire Turkish mercenaries from uh, Asia from the the Seljuk uh, Seljukate of room in Asia Minor. Presumably those are Muslims, um, but they don't act as Muslims. If you know what I mean, like yeah. while they're in his employ, they don't exhibit any particular Islamic behavior. And remember, these are mercenaries. Like I mean, nominally they might be Muslim; they might come from a Muslim culture. But does this really? Uh, affect very much about what they do? It's like, nah, probably, mm. probably not.
1: And this week begins. Now I want to head in the direction towards uh, Jerusalem because it's uh, famously, you know, the the Crusaders' target. But it, did did they lose? Did they lose Jerusalem ninety years before? So what was the reason Alexius wanted to take Jerusalem back? Why did he want it now if not and no one else tried? Did, did previous emperors try to reclaim Jerusalem? or? So I'm not sure where you're coming
0: from. Alexius did not want to take Jerusalem. He had no interest in Jerusalem. Um, then, you might be confusing him with the First Crusade, but those yeah. are two different entities. So uh, Byzantine emperors... So the Roman Empire had lost Jerusalem for good in the 630s with the Islamic conquests. Yeah, and to my knowledge, no emperor after that point ever tried to take Jerusalem or signaled a strong desire to do so. Um, as far as I know, there's only one emperor, and this is the late 12th century, so almost so a century after Alexius about whom a court orator said oh and you'll go take Jerusalem, but this is like a it's a throwaway line in the context of a of a crusade, this is exactly during the third crusade. um, When the Emperor, the German Emperor um, Friedrich Barbarossa was planning on attacking Constantinople that very next spring, so uh, I wouldn't take that line as indicating any serious commitment on the part of taking Jerusalem so. No, Jerusalem was not on the radar of the Byzantine emperors.
1: So, what does Alex send a letter to Pope Urban, or is that where's the motivation there? Yeah, they not need make a call to get help from Pope Urban to reclaim yeah so, territories, which yes, ended, uh, initially end up being a crusade.
0: Yes, uh, the, the first crusade was not. Alexius's intent. <laughs> um, the letter you're referring to is an appeal for help, uh, military that is for military assistance, and by military assistance, Alexius understood probably uh, mercenaries he could hire. So we actually know something about the context here. As I mentioned earlier, Alexius was always looking for mercenary units especially when he had more money. And in in, in the 1090s, he he had more money because he had defeated the Normans, he had defeated the Pechenegs, and he had confiscated all of those lands. His empire was generally at peace in the 1090s, not entirely, but nothing compared to the 80s. So he had more money. And he was beginning to look toward Asia Minor, right across the Straits, right? So you're in Constantinople, you can actually see Asia Minor, it's not that far, you you can swim to it. Um, And This was a huge loss. Asia Minor had been the Roman heartland for 400 years or more. And so he was beginning to think about how he might take it back from the Turks bit by bit. And what he needed were soldiers. So every time a Latin account or a Duke or a pilgrim or whatever passed through his empire, he would say, say, look, if you've got any spare soldiers back home, that you can spare, you know, send them over. I'll, I'll hire them. Uh, he hired some knights from uh, some Flemish knights uh, precisely in this way. And remember, in the West, um, the West is going through now a kind of economic and demographic uh, uh, revival. So there, there are more people, there are more soldiers, and a lot of the Western sort of, you know, dukes and barons and all these principalities sometimes had too many soldiers lying around, like, and they can cause problems. They don't want to have surplus armed manpower. And so a lot of them started, and there wasn't enough land or titles or, you know, money for them all, especially given the practice of primogeniture, right, where the eldest son gets everything or, you know, most of the inheritance. So, there was a kind of export of surplus military manpower. Now, a lot of this went to Southern Italy. Uh, so the Normans who conquered the Byzantine territories in Southern Italy, and then they went to Sicily. And meanwhile, there was a parallel conquest of Muslim lands in Spain going on. And, and you know there are other uh, activities as well. Um, so uh, at the same time, wars that were taking place in the West were were dislocating local aristocracy. So the striking example is the Norman conquest of uh, England. Right. So when William the Conqueror, he conquers England 1066 and an entire cadre of Anglo-Saxon aristocracy and soldiers is just displaced. Like he literally takes their lands. Uh, and, and hunt some of them down. And so there's this wave of migration of Anglo-Saxons out of England, and many of them go to Byzantium and they're hired by the Byzantine emperors in the Varangian guard. So this was a special uh, mercenary unit for northerners. It started out uh, by, uh, it started out as um, a contingent of sort of Varangian Rus, uh, Centrum Rus uh, in the late 10th century. But it expanded to include Scandinavians and uh, Icelanders and eventually also Anglo-Saxons. So Alexius has a large unit of Anglo-Saxon soldiers uh, who had just been displaced from their land. And so he's always looking for that kind of manpower. And in the 1090s, he is looking for soldiers with, with, with whom to take back Asia Minor. And yeah, he uh, he sent a letter to the Pope, among others, uh, saying, basically, if you can spare some soldiers, send them so that we can start freeing Christians
1: in Asia Minor. I mean, that's the background. And this uh, becomes too overwhelming in the end. What's that? It becomes too overwhelming with all the troops that come. come well,
0: yes. <laughs> so what he gets in response to one of these appeals is the first crusade now there are very conflicting views about the narrative here in other words there are there's a narrative whereby alexius is completely surprised that by the first crusade like he just asked for some mercenaries mm. and instead he gets this you know, series of armies converging on his capital to go to the east and, and he has to scramble to, you know, handle them and make sure that they don't cause damage to his empire and so forth. That's the narrative that Anna gives. And at the opposite extreme of that is a a narrative reconstructed by a colleague, Peter Frankopan, who wrote a book on the First Crusade, where he argues exactly the opposite, that Alexius and Pope Urban II had jointly organized the First Crusade, and that it was Alexius' idea. Like, um, yeah, they, yeah.
1: Pope and I would like to add that it's Theodore Frankopan's book that I'm referring from because I ju- actually just read the book, and I, it's his book that I'm referring from.
0: Yeah, yeah, right now. And then, like everybody else is in between. Yeah. So um, I'll I'll say, the sources are not very good. In other words, I don't think that Franco-Pan's model is like impossible. I'm not entirely convinced by it. However, like I said, I mean, our sources for the, the immediate background of the first crusade are not good enough that we can like rule it out or anything but also it's not proven it can't be proven either
1: Hmm.
0: and certainly the mentality that gave rise to the crusades in the sense that the whole idea of going on an armed pilgrimage for religious reasons this is I think beyond the imagination and experience of any Byzantine at this time, I think that that matrix that created crusaders in the West, right? That is very specifically a function of the religious and military culture of Western Europe. I don't think that Alexius could have either imagined such a thing, much less manipulated it. I'm not entirely even sure that Urban the knew exactly what he was going to get. Mm. So, uh, you know, I, I think Alexis may have a, you know, a, asked for some, you know, mercenaries basically to hire. It's, it, you know, not please come help me, but if you've got any soldiers, I'll, I'll take them. Um, and separate developments in the West. Um, led to this kind of explosion of militant religiosity and it spiraled into the first crusade what i'm convinced of by looking at the sources for the arrival of the first crusade armies when they arrive in the byzantine empire it's very clear that alexius was prepared for them he he had prepared supplies he had you know, designated routes, he had interpreters, he had guides, like there was this whole apparatus in place for feeding them and escorting them and for handling them once they arrived in Constantinople that I don't think could have been put up on the spur of the moment. So I'm convinced that Alexis knew what was coming at least a year earlier which indicates to me that there had at least been communication between Pope Urban and Constantinople on the logistics of what was coming. So I'm not convinced because there's just insufficient evidence that Alexius was involved in the planning of it. But I do think that he knew it was coming and was prepared for it, and he had a pretty good plan for handling the crusaders once they arrived
1: so that's as far as i'll go now i might be wrong but didn't william the conqueror as well join the crusades no his father had gone on a
0: pilgrimage and was buried at nicaea he died on the way back Um, In Byzantium, but no, William the Conqueror had nothing to do. He's way too far removed from all of this. Uh, His son in law went on the First Crusade. Uh, I don't don't know if you're referring to
1: him. Could be, yeah. Could be him. I may have mixed up both both of them. Yeah, well, William the Conqueror,
0: I mean, he was a Duke of Normandy before he conquered England, and a, a whole bunch of Normans went on the Crusade too. Uh, so you know, he knew people <laughs> who went on the crusade, but no, no, he he was
1: uh, uh, dead by then. <laughs> so, to end, what what was the consequences of to end this? What was the consequences of Alexius's reign? He would reign for like for the seven years, right? So, he must have done something right. And how is the aftermath of Alexius's reign? Well, if we judge him by... How does it change the Byzantine Empire?
0: Oh, it changed it quite a bit. So, if we're judging him here by the let's say the norms that are appropriate for a Byzantine Emperor, right? Because Hmm. I have my own political beliefs and, you know, if I were to bring them to the assessment of any pre-modern ruler, it would not look pretty. Uh, But... By the standards of a Byzantine emperor, uh, he did okay, and probably more than okay, in the sense that he found an empire, a state, a Roman state, state of the Roman peoples, but it is, that was in shambles. It was on the verge of extinction, with very few resources or organization left. He was kind of a sick man in Europe. <laughs> that sort of. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and it had happened within a generation, like in his lifetime, right? Yeah. And he left it considerably stronger. It was secure in all of its Balkan territories, and it had regained a significant part of Asia Minor uh, that was the effect of the crusade. So Alexis's own armies you know, were right behind the crusaders uh, reclaiming Western Asia Minor. So these are the coasts with the fertile valleys and so forth. And he had put the economy back on a sound footing. He had issued new coinage that was fairly stable. Um, and he had created a new court system that was actually more unequal uh, than before. So the Komnenian family now began to constitute an aristocracy all on their own, and that that was a problem down the road. That created a lot of problems. So that was, in retrospect, probably not the best idea. But um, you know, to to start to exclude people from the provinces from making their way to constantinople and becoming and claiming the highest positions in the state so by making those highest positions a function of being a relative of the emperor that was in the long term
1: not a good idea Mm. Uh, because there's rivalry, right the people want to be better than their, their, their rival in a sense
0: um no, I mean rivalry is an inherent part of any political system. Uh, you, you're never gonna get rid of that. The the specific dysfunctions of the Komnenian regime were first, that it it diminished the opportunities for provincial buy-in. In other words, in the past, you know, local provincial notables could invest in the imperial system, they could move to Constantinople, they could move up the hierarchies they could claim the highest positions and this was understood and it was one of the primary reasons why local provincial societies were and remained keyed to the imperial system and 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 loyal to Constantinople those avenues were kind of blocked off by the komnenian regime in other words at best you could be a sort of second rate bureaucrat and so that Contributed to a gradual alienation of the provinces. Like, if we can't make it there, why, you know, maybe we can create something separate for ourselves here. Mm. So, by the end of the 12th century, there was a lot of regional separatism. Um, The second dysfunction has to do with the creation of a vast network of very entitled princelings. so all of these komnenian brothers and cousins and second cousins and nephews who felt socially entitled simply because they were part of the komnenian clan and went around causing trouble because a lot of them felt that they deserved more than being just a an imperial brother or an imperial cousin and yeah. Yeah, at the end of the 12th century, this was disastrous. This was a disaster. So why create a bunch of entitled princes who, you know, who go around causing trouble because they feel that they deserve more. And this starts already with Alexis's children.
1: Yeah, Anna, Anna felt like she was supposed to be the empress, right? But she felt betrayed by John taking over instead of her.
0: Yeah, he, She didn't. she didn't like him. <laughs> <laughs> she had differences in policy. Um, now she didn't cause that much trouble, but her brother um, Isaios Isaac, so John II's brother, boy did he cause trouble. And Isaios' son Andronicus, he was the definition of trouble, and he eventually took over in in uh, 1082. Sorry, uh, 1182, 1183. And yeah, it, was, it, it didn't go well. Um, but yeah, so the Canadian regime has these inherent liabilities. But other than that, no, look, I mean, honestly, he, he took an empire that was on the verge of collapse, and he left it much stronger than it had been. And in this regard, he's quite different from, say, Justinian, mm. who ruled for exactly as long. Justinian found an empire that was very strong and secure, and he left it in ruins um, or about to be in ruins. Um, not all of that was his fault, but because yeah, the plague, right, but yeah. um, a lot of it was a lot of it was so to that degree, he compares
1: favorably. So the, I'm, I'm, I like to think a little bit about, just for fun exercise, I like to think a little bit about alternative history. And do you think that Anna would have been a better ruler than her brother?
0: No. I'm nothing against her, but he was okay. Like, What, are, what deficiencies do you see in John II that you Know so, we, you we know, just
1: we, general we, question, not not not, not in, in the run, not as a sudden in run with him, but just curious what you think.
0: Well, I'm kind of glad that Anna didn't, uh, <laughs> because it you know it turned her into other um, uh, occup not occupations but activities that I personally value more. So I prefer to have Anna the historian than Anna the empress, uh, just because. The Alexiad is such a remarkable document mm. and it's not just the Alexiad. Uh, Anna became uh, very famous for her learning and she sponsored circles of philosophers who wrote commentaries and very interesting texts. Um, I-, I personally find the existence of a very learned um, Roman historian who's a woman. And it's certainly an interesting and, character. Yeah, I find that far more interesting and worth having then you know get another empress you know if you want empresses we have others in Byzantine history you can pick them
1: mm. thank you for so much for coming and before you go do you have anything to promote if people want to find you where can they find you ah uh, well thank you Ireland uh, uh, if,
0: you, if your audience wants to hear more about Byzantium, uh, I also run a podcast called Byzantium and Friends, uh, which they can find on all the relevant platforms. And I interview experts on their work in as wide um, an, an area of Byzantine studies as I can make it. So I can put it down uh, in
1: the description to my podcast. They can so, find me there. So people don't find, yeah. put click on it when I'm published, published episodes. Thank you. No worries. Thank you so much for coming. It was a pleasure to have you on. This has Likewise. been this has been World H Twelve. You can find us on, Twitter, Instagram, on uh, you can listen to our pod under the tag that H Twelve. You can also find listen to this podcast on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcast, wherever you can find podcasts, and. Uh, if you liked this episode, definitely check out some of the previous episodes. You're definitely gonna find something you like. And this my name is Alan. This has been Rondade 12. Thank you, and I'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end
0: goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50